Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our members of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine our show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Michael R., Thomas N., Alan B., and Paul M. Back on the program today is Daniel Major. Daniel is the CEO of GoVX Uranium, a Africa-focused uranium development company with its core Matawela project in Niger, along with a pipeline in Zambia and Mali. GoVX is a uranium portfolio holding at Smith Weekly Research. The company is listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol GXU and also on the US OTC markets under the symbol GVXXF. Mr. Major, thanks for coming back on the program. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure and I, I thoroughly enjoy your notes when you send them out, as you know, because I tend to write back to you. Thank you, Daniel. It's always appreciated and good to chat again. I know it's been a while since we've had a formal conversation, but why don't we kick things off with getting your thoughts on the current uranium market and how you feel the rest of this year goes and also why don't you fill the audience in on where you're speaking to us from yeah let's start with that because i'm in sunny niame there is a ECOWAS mining and oil conference on which is being sponsored by the nigerian government we are a sponsor of it and we're on three different panels so I decided to come down and, and be part of that. As a result, you find me looking at a, a baking hot niame. And I think, you know, baking hot is, is probably a little over excessive on the uranium market. But I think what we are seeing, you know, and I think Cameco did a good job of kind of describing the market in their results is a, is a very positive outlook for the market, while it may not be you know, showing up as excitedly that some investors would like to see in the spot market, that the reality is that the, the overall market is looking healthier and healthier. The best example for me of, of that, what we were talking about last year on this subject to investors was, we've got one particular uh, utility we deal with. And when I spoke to them, last year and Chris Lewis speaks to them as well, they were devout spot guys. You know, they saw no reason why they needed to go away from the spot market and they could get all of their material from the spot market whenever they wanted it. Uh, that same utility has now switched its strategy and while it won't walk away from the spot market, is putting on four, expected to put on four RFPs this year. Not long ones, we're talking two, three year outlook, but it just, I think, underlines this issue for the utilities of concern of where their material is going to come from and a realization that they cannot just rely going forward on the spot market and that they need to start putting a pin into material to make sure it's actually going to be there. Uh, and they all have different timelines and as you know we've already seen some last year that were well out into the 30s uh 2030 in cut so and we saw one utility who put a collar a ceiling out there long-term ceiling of 78 dollars on their material 
four years out and onwards. So, you know, I think that is really is the story. And you can see that was what drove Cameco's decision is that there is an increasing focus of the utilities to start moving into this long-term, medium to long-term market to pin down material and the impact that's going to have. If you look at the spot market, you know, I think what Sprott has done is a really good job of one, moving the price up into the 40s where it needed to be to allow the utilities and the mining companies to negotiate in the 40s um, and to start writing long-term contracts into those numbers. So it moves that up about $10 almost instantaneously. The other issue that we're kind of looking at here now is that, you know, it's now holding a floor out there. And if you, you know, I kind of look at things from a technical point of view as well, you know, we're looking at a declining volatility chart out there, which is either going to go up or down uh, fairly violently when it decides to do it. And it's highly unlikely it's going to go down from that point of view as well. So I think, you know, all of the things are now lining up, all of the things are there where the utilities need material. And I think the other thing that kind of put a cap on it for a while, but I think is changing, is there seemed to be a fixation from a few producers that they were grabbing for business or guys were grabbing for contracts. And you were seeing contracts pulling in at around the $40 mark, uh, which obviously was stopping that spot price really going. Why would you, you know, if you can get forward material at spot price or lower, why would you buy spot price material? But I think you're going to see that fade away uh, as well fairly quickly, particularly as more utilities are now coming through. And I think the last point out there is inflation. You know, the forward prices are inflation impacted, as you appreciate, in any commodity. Rising inflation will start to have an impact. In particular, rising interest rates will have an impact because, of course, you're borrowing to hold material um, or the forward value of material. Then there's an interest rate component built into it, and that will change the forward curve going forward as well. So I like where the market is. I think the, the way the utilities is, are responding to it is now moving in the right direction for us to see that price growth kicking in. Uh, and more importantly, for you know, people like ourselves, the developers, an increasing focus on RFPs, which of course we need as, as developers to underprint the pricing structure that we use for projects going forward. Lots of good indicators out there. Dan, I appreciate the overview there on that and your position on the market. I'd like to see the reliance on the spot market continue for a while. Let's go ahead and milk oh, yeah. that out while we can. <laughs> uh, that would be nice. But, you know, some of the news coming out of Cameco on the contracting front is that there's a need out there and that we're starting that volume ramp up in the term market, which is just getting started in that respect. Economic price adjustments, cost escalations, you name it, things are going to get more pricey and a lot of the capex is on these projects. The other thing, Andrew, as well, is that as more and more people move to the RFPs, it, it is also has a way of removing material from the spot market effectively. So, yes. you know, you're now forward, but you've already got material that doesn't go near the market. So you're reducing that reliance, which means for those that need spot market material, there's actually less of it. So it helps drive that spot price underneath as well. And the CapExes are going up. We're seeing this across the entire natural resource sector. Everybody's seeing it at the grocery store in most places, maybe not every place yet, but in some of your yeah. legacy nations, you're seeing substantial cost increases. Yep. So let's get into... Goviax, 
How about just kick it off here with your project by project walkthrough? Just give us a status update on the key projects here at Matawella. We'll start with that and your plans for 2022. Yeah, uh, I'm obviously kind of laid those out at the beginning of the year and I'll let it to shareholders, but you know, really laying out our strategy, which is continually you know, accelerating our projects as we feel that the market becomes more uh, responsive to it. Uh, and our ability to, you know, work in those markets. So if we start with Matawela, clear focus is completing that feasibility study. You know, we feel the market is getting ready for it. We're targeting Q2, um, and we're still on track for that at the moment. The focus there is to kind of work through a number of trade-offs. Um, we're trying to, you know, as you point out, you know, inflation's an issue for everybody. So we're working through areas where we're going, all right, well, how can we, cancel out inflation and, and actually drive it the other way around on our project you know one of the benefits i think of the pfs that we did is we, we fully loaded everything into it you know even to the price of how much we were going to pay food for the workers on the mine and by settling out that project and defining its scope um, as it was it's allowed us to focus on the trade-off so very much where we are we also brought the endeavor guys on last year as well um, initially they're engaged in getting behind the technical side, helping us to make sure that, you know, we're not trying to do things on the technical side that the banks wouldn't find bankable um, and wouldn't be able to sign off. And that's important. I mean, you don't want to get to the end of one of these, think you've been really clever and then the bank, bank won't sign you off technically. And then on the other side, you know, they're starting to work with, the talk to the lenders, you know, and then as we move forward, they'll accelerate it. And at the same time, as you know, last year we brought on Chris Lewis, who's got 30 years of selling uranium under his belt and is already you know, engaged in conversation. You know, he was at the NEI, both of the last NEI conferences, sitting down with utilities. I've done a, you know, a plethora of calls with utilities explaining who we are. And that's why we're now getting RFPs out into the future and a part of that conversation. And that allows us to work on and off market with those guys. Our off-market work will really just accelerate once we get the feasibility study because we know exactly what we need then. At the moment, you know, obviously there's some vagary until we get the final answer. So everything looking good. I mean, if that works, then, you know, we would be hopefully targeting end of this year into next year, get the financing. And then at the moment, it's looking like a two-year construction period, 2025, to produce uranium. On... Zambia, we did some initial dr infill drilling at the moment um, on the Matanga project. About 50% of the resource is in inferred, and most of that is sitting in the Dibwe East deposit, uh, which was discovered after the project was mine permitted. We've obviously got to infill. That will be the target for this year to get that drilled out um, so that all of those resources can get used in a, in a feasibility study. Uh, one of the benefits of that project is both ends of it, the Guave Nyame bit and the Dibwe's and the Tanga bit, were both mine permitted. And so they'd actually gone to a feasibility study, pre-feasibility study, sorry. And so that, interestingly, their, their net results were very similar. So we will do some verification met results um, on that work this year as well and really try and tick off as much of the field work as we can do so that next year and into 2024 we focus on engineering and design and costing 
so that we try and keep Matanga about two years behind Matawela as the strategy. Um, you know, there's no reason why it should drag much further behind, but also we can't run them parallel to each other totally, otherwise we just fall over too much technical involvement. And then Falea, when we acquired it, um, was a, a, a flat-lying sandstone uranium deposit. That's all that had been ever drilled, but it's on two big gold structures are sitting there. The flat-lying ore body has copper and silver in it as well, so it's polymetallic in its own form. And we went in the field trying to understand the geology more. Obviously, it was not our project originally, and to try and understand where the trends would be for future drilling, we went and used IP and realized that one, the fault structures were doing things that were not previously predicted. Uh, and two, there was a big anomaly sitting right underneath the existing uranium deposit that was one contiguous with the fault, which is seen to be you know, the source of the juice but also happens to be on trend with the, one of the big structural goal lines. So that's why we did a, a lot of the field work that we did looking at samples. So we went in and assayed the bottom of cores below uh, the uranium deposit to try and understand if there was any logic to this IP anomaly that was turning up. And we're literally scratching the surface of it. So that's why this year the target is to go and drill into that anomaly and say, right, uranium's come up through it, copper's come up through it, silver's come up through it, gold. Is the real deposit actually underneath the uranium deposit? And if so, what's in it? So we can figure out what to do with it. So that's the strategy on, on where we're going in Philaire. It, you know, it, it could potentially be very exciting, just given the amount of minerals and, and where it is structurally with the other projects in the region. Some interesting points you brought up, Dan. I want to come back to some of those in a moment and mm. discuss a little more detail. But give us a capital structure update. Where are we standing with shares outstanding, cash on hand, debt, and major shareholders on the roster? I never remember them all off the top of my hand, if you apologize for me there. I worry about the, how we operate more than anything else, Andrew. I appreciate dilution, and we spend a lot of time trying to not raise money. We spend a lot of time trying to do the most with what we've got. We finished the year, well, the last set of accounts that we put out had $7.5 million um, on them. We obviously had the warrants come through at the end of the year, a lot of them. Uh, so all I can say is we had more money than the third quarter accounts had, quite a lot more. So we finished the year well cashed up. We still have the debt to the government in Niger, which is $6 million. Approximately, we are seeking to see if the government would defer some of that. Um, we have yet to get to a final answer with them, uh, but you know, from a risk point of view, that payment is in July. From a capital structure point of view, obviously, we've had some changes last year with Denison selling down half of its position, but it's put a price on the second half of 80 cents only to the the single seller, and it went as a block trade. Uh, insiders are sitting with about 12 percent about 5 to 10% sitting in ETFs. Most of the uranium funds are holding Goviet shares as well. That's where we stand from a, from a structure point of view. Appreciate that. And folks can see some of those other details at the company's website, elsewhere, yeah. CEDAR, et cetera. 
How about financing needs, Dan, for 2022? You mentioned, you know, but debt that could be due here. Do you see that the financing needs to be done in terms of equity raise? What are your thoughts there? Uh, yeah. You know, clearly with the, the monies we've got, and that, depending on what we can do with the, the debt to the government, you know, there is a, a risk there that we're going to have to raise some money uh, to make it to the end of the year and to the final FS that goes with it. You know, that's a function of where we are in the market as much as anything else. The scale of that, you know, we'll decide at the time that's appropriate. Very well. And uh, how about the major shareholder here that's recently come into view? It was an existing shareholder of Goviex, of course, MM Asset Management. They added to their position via purchase of Goviex shares from Denison. What can you tell the audience yep. about them and their view on this market? What I can tell you is if you look back at how these guys made their money, they go all in on the subject. They do not muck around. I mean, they made their billions plus on the cannabis market by making some very astute investments and not just one investment. They hit the market at different angles and they have done effectively the same thing here. They have done a lot of work to understand this market and have gone into it in a really big way. We were one of the very first investments they made, but you know they're in the physical, they're in any aspect that they can find because they believe in the uranium story. And how about your current ownership? How many shares do you own at this point? And what are you doing to ensure your alignment with the shareholders? If I add value for everybody, then I'll make money. I think I'm with 1.6 at the moment. Again, I don't even watch my own shareholdings. I'm more worried about what we do as a company. You know, at the end of the day, it has to be adding value. We do that firstly and foremost, you know, as we've talked about how this company makes money for shareholders, which is goes into production or get sold to somebody because it's such a good project that somebody else wants it. And that is still very much, you know, as I said earlier, a lot of the work that I'm doing, I'm not just sitting back on the PFS and saying, well, look, guys, just update it as it is and put new numbers in it. You know, a lot of the work for me is, is on the technical side and the trade-offs, looking at options that will counter inflation. That's why we get paid as engineers. It's not just to accept inflation. It's like, how can you undercut inflation? So a lot of that is what I drive um, as a business. How we spend money uh, is, again, is key that, you know, we're given the money, you know, by investors who believe we can do the most with it or, or hope we will do the most with it. You know, and I have to make sure that how we spend that money is appropriate. And at the end of the day, as anyone who reads our accounts will realize that, you know, I make money here if, as well if there is a, a transaction or a, a control change. Um, and the bigger that control change is, the bigger my takeout from this. So I'm fully aligned with all shareholders on how this works, both at the equity holding position, but also how I drive the company forward. Yeah, Dan, we had some questions from the audience in regards to your shareholder level. A common question that came in and so how about Chris Lewis? Come back to him for a moment. You know, he's there to lead off takes. You know, you mentioned it earlier a little bit here, but are there any specific further advancements at the company level regarding offtake progress? And then also anything with regards to financing, probably tied in here with Endeavor as well. Oh, absolutely. And you, you probably appreciate this, you know, any company that's got a, a mining project 
you know, of, uh, in, unless you happen to be Rio Tinto when you can finance it from your own internal funding, you know, if you're relying on a debt market, then you have got to have a feasibility study to show that debt market exactly what it you're taking that loan for and for it to be reviewed. I mean, one of the benefits as well, both for the off takers and for the equity side is that the debt side do an incredible amount of detailed work in the background. The due diligence process for them is, is far greater uh, than anyone else. And so, you know, if at the end you secure that financing, then anyone coming from the offtake and or the equity side knows that if the debt is there, it's done its due diligence and is satisfied of where the project is. With the, the off-takers, they're in a similar position. Um, some of them do like to do some degree of, of, of due diligence, but at the end of the day, you know, if you think of a utility and how a bank is going to look at an off-take agreement, the bank wants an off-take agreement, if you've got one, that is, is guaranteed. As banker rights, you know, you've got it that the off-taker is going to take that material no matter what. And the price is guaranteed no matter what. And so any utility at the same time is going to want to know that when it puts a commitment out there to take material from you, it's not taking material from somebody else. And that while they will try and diversify their risk, depending on how they want to spread it out, you know, they want some surety as well that, you know, any development company out there is actually going to develop and be there so their material will turn up, uh, particularly if they're committing to take it. At the moment for us, yes, we're on RFPs. We are bidding on RFPs. As I said, you know, as Cameco noted themselves, they haven't been particularly lucky on RFPs in the market either somebody has been bidding in at the spot price which you know obviously there aren't any developers at that level at the moment but you know what we are finding is that because of diversity of supply issues but more importantly you know the continual credibility we're building up the utilities are effectively waiting for us to come back to them and say right this is exactly what we want as a company here is the fs i mean in fact we had a call from one utility the other day saying right you know, we'd like to start organizing calls with your geologist soon. We've read your PFS, but, you know, we start, need to start doing some due diligence on, our, on you guys as well to make sure that we're comfortable with where you get to. So, you know, I've described it before. It's a bit like a Rubik's Cube. All of the bits come together on the back of the FS. Yep. Hopefully we'll see some definitive progress by the end of the year or early in uh, oh, 2023 on this. As part of the financing, Dan, would you look yeah. to sell a royalty? I mean, we know that there's certainly at least one or two royalty folks in the space that would look at this, maybe more than that, actually. But, uh, you know, yeah, would you sell yeah. a royalty on one of the projects to help finance? Let's put it this way. We will look at anything that makes logical sense in the structure that you put together. I think the best way of kind of looking at the whole thing is this: there's an amount of cash in and out that's part of a project okay and however you layer it in and out you what you give somewhere you've got to take from somewhere else okay so if you decide to give a royalty to get some money you're taking away from future cash flow so how does that affect everybody else below the royalty guy like the other lenders and the other equity 
does that royalty structure make sense for the project relative to the rest? The same with how you look at equity investment for off-takers. So say you know, a, a third party comes in and says, hey, we want to give you a big chunk of cash to, as equity, but we want pref rights on uranium offtake. You know, you then got to balance that and say, all right, I can get this cheap money from here. It's guaranteed, blah, blah, blah. But what price do I now have to sell this uranium at to this guy because he wants it because he's given me all this money? Okay, but I needed this price. How much now do I've got to sell the rest of the uranium at to balance the difference? Or can you get the guy to fit where you need him to be? So at the end of the day, there is no direct answer i think andrew until you know what the whole bowl looks like because some things add but take away in others and you've got to do all the pieces you you don't want to give something away and then find you've you've jeopardized the rest of it going forward you know we've seen this in broad natural resource sector the royalty saturation that's happening and certainly that they have to be much more competitive now than they used to be the cost of capital in a traditional sense as well you have to be more competitive in the current environment Always good to look at these things and see who wants to get competitive and sharpen their pencil. Yeah. How about Mr. Eric Kraft, a recent addition, also a larger shareholder on the Insider roster? Yeah. What does he bring to the table for the company? He brings actually a, a completely different insight as as an investor. One, he's obviously got his own money in the in the company, um, considerable. He's also the chairman of Leading Edge which is a, a rare earth graphite company um, as well, which he's put his own money into. He's obviously a wealthy businessman. And so, you know, I think when you've got somebody who's made a lot of money themselves, who understands debt markets, who understands shipping markets, who understands investment into mining assets, that just adds to the overall structure of our board as a person. You know, he comes from a very European angle as well and, and dealing with European investors, a different group for us. You know, we have actually quite a lot of investors coming out of Scandinavia, but also he just tends to look at things in a different way, which is really helpful from a, from a board point of view. Uh, and he challenges some of the, the thoughts that we've had in the past. How about synergies with regards to Orano being in Niger, got a very strong foothold and influence in the government there in the local community. And then also from a developer perspective, there's one other developer in the country. Are there any synergies you see with working with these parties? I mean, it's a pretty limited group in Niger, Dan, as you know. It is a very small club. Look, when we originally did our, our Deniston deal, one of the rationales for here was just to diversify our own position anyway, because we just didn't want to have all of our eggs into one basket going forward. Is there synergy with working with the others? Yeah, I mean, you can always find some synergy, but I think the things to have a look at here as well is, okay, it's a big country, we're far apart from each other to start with. so. Is there a synergy between two companies who are, you know, 150 kilometers apart in the case of, uh, of the other Canadian listed at Global? You know, does that really help from an operational point of view? Very difficult from a running a head office synergy. Oh, absolutely. You could do that. But at a mine level, a little more difficult. Uh, in the case of Arano, one of the issues that we have, which is slightly different to everybody else, is we have the molybdenum in our ore body. 
we obviously have, have found a way of dealing with um, and, and dealing with it very well to turn it into a byproduct. Whereas, you know, our peers at Arano have very, very low molybdenum. I mean, exceedingly low, and they're able to just dump it out. And we could not put our material into their plant um, because it just isn't designed for it. So the metallurgy doesn't work directly with Arano. The key at the end of the day is, you know, you have to go and run in this business with an open mind. Do not shut yourself off from an idea. As an industry, we're a small industry as well. So we're always talking to each other as CEOs, particularly pre-COVID days when we could meet each other. You know, you never know how you find the, the right transaction or the right deal that works, you know, and things change at different times. So always keep an open mind. Agreed. You need more of that in the sector. There's a lot of egos out there and a lot of stubbornness, and we'll lighten some of that up and soften the blows yeah, as we yeah, go here. Today. Yeah. If the right deal is to merge us with somebody else and I have to find some gardening leave and it makes money for everybody, then that's the way it should be done, for example. On export, talk about export uh, out of the project, out of Matawella specifically. Zambia, I think we have a pretty good idea how that would go uh, should things be developed there. But but talk about your export route out of Matawella here. Are you pretty much using the same channels that Orano would use? There is a national transport company here in Niger that was set up years ago to transport uranium out of Niger. It works the way it works because it has to cross the border into Benin. So it is a military escorted, because it's uranium, a military escorted convoy goes out from Murano, um with the national transport country. But because of the agreements, that convoy can go all the way to the port at Cotonou and get itself on a boat at the IEA port at Cotonou. And that's the way it's been done since the early 70s. Um, and so this is a well-trodden route for material leaving Niger and will continue to be the approach that carries on. Pretty cut and dry there. I appreciate you clarifying that for the audience there, Dan. Let's talk a little bit on community and ESG initiatives. Anything specifically that uh, you and Govin and the team has been working on in terms of local community work, employment, training, and also relationships and projects with the government? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the stuff we've been doing for a long, long time. Um, you know, I think that all the way back in 2008, when, you know, things were flying and, and Niger was in the middle of a famine and Goviex at the time gave a million dollars to Niger for famine relief, which the Canadian government backed up with another $5 million on the back of it for famine relief. So, you know, we've been engaged in, in Niger for a long, long time and supporting things. We do, from a CSR point of view, our, our primary focus has been water supply, you know, recognizing who the majority of, I mean, we do separate things slightly. We obviously have Arlet and Hakukan, but Arano tend to look after those. So what we've tended to do is, is push ourselves out further to the townships of like Gugaram, where there are less government and less Arano involvement and we, we pushed ourselves there. So our, our primary focus there has been education, construction of schools. We provide foods to the schools as well because obviously, you know, these are nomadic people. Um, the children are left at the schools and therefore we want to focus on that. Uh, and water supply, we provide water wells for the nomadic herds. Their, their lifestyle, their, their wealth, everything relies on these herds to move through. And as you can appreciate in a region where 
the annual rainfall is somewhere between 10 and 20 millimeters, access to water is, and it comes in about two weeks, uh, access to water is key. If you look at Zambia differently, we there have way more people on our property, so we focused on uh, sustainability, providing support to farming, teaching on farming methodologies. We provided new schools uh, for both primary and secondary. You know, it's pretty easy to come up with these projects, um, particularly when you think of five-year-old, four and five-year-olds having to walk 10 kilometers each day to get to school. Moving that school, building them a primary school that's closer. Access to water, again, highly important. You know, when people are relying on digging hand wells into riverbeds and then herding animals away, putting in water boreholes, you know, a bit of a no-brainer to provide fresh, clean water. So you have a massive reduction on disease that comes through. Uh, there we focus as well on education, but also adult education um, to try and bring the, the number of adults up. And that, that obviously helps us, you know, for a project going forward. And, and similar things in, in, in Mali. So, you know, what we've done is, is like many companies whereby, you know, you've been running these programs for a long time. And we've operated since 2008 in Niger with that single accident. So, you know, the systems have all been there. But what we have done is now really start to embed them in documentation more. So we're doing a lot more uh, documentation process. We've obviously been engaged with government all the way as well. So we have a whole program of, of uh, stakeholder engagement that we go through that's all recorded. That's been going on ever since we got here. And you can see that in the way that, you know, the government has worked with us in Niger to, you know, the deal that we did with them back in 2019. Um, you know, the speed you get permits done. I mean, even in Zambia, you know, we had the issue back in 2020, but, you know, it was dealt with amicably and moved on. Um, and so, you know, we've always maintained strong conversation there, but also conversation all the way at the community level um, and dealing with those, you know, and like all companies uh, in all aspects of your business, no matter whether it's the technical side or the ESG components, you know the whole process has got to be circular you you spend your time like all right i do this how can i do it better how can i improve the system we are we've gone from being an explorer to being a company that wants to build a mine are our systems now fit for purpose and we're now you know in that process now pushing it harder to say all right how do we make our fit processes fit for the development construction phase and when we go into construction and we're okay how do we make our systems fit for purpose for a production company and so, you know, those are aspects of where, you know, you, you drive the ESG. But, you know, I think one aspect that, you know, Cameco raised about their local employment, you know, we run 100% local Zambian, Malians and Nigerians. Certainly the GoVX team has the resources to be able to handle this and make sure that uh, everything and interests are aligned, if you will, on this front, which is very important. It goes beyond that, and because at the end of the day, you know, you are looking to defer risk in all aspects of everything you do. And if you don't have a, a processes and the systems in place, you're not looking for improvement. And, and right. you know, as you know, in your own business, there's always room for improvement in everything you do. And 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 the and the ESG systems do should be part of that process. It shouldn't just become a ticker box because I want a glossy report. It's okay. Guys, how do we improve on it? How do we circulate through this process to monitor and improve what we did last time? You know, what do we learn? How do we get better at doing it? Yes, 
and certainly there's a fantastic model that's right at your fingertips, uh, the bigger Ivanhoe group as well, and lots of yep. resources in that regards, and a brilliant execution by the group as well. Anything on strategy, Dan, that we've missed here on just discussion about, you know, GoVX in general, is there any other strategy points you want to make here before we close out? I think at the end of the day, we've, we've made it very clear who we are. You know, we are a uranium developer. We want to build our mines. You know, back in 2016, we saw the bottom of the market and we were right. <laughs> we were a little early, but it did go up, which is why we did the deal with Denison. You know, are we open to strategic ideas? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, you know, we wouldn't forego something and blindly just say this is all we're going to do. But it is very much focused on getting Madawella and then then um, Zambia up and running as mines. Philea, as I say, you know, it is a uranium project, but we've realized just from our own exploration, there's, we have to look at it with new eyes, but we have to do some work on it to understand what those new eyes mean. And then based on what that result comes out with, we'll define strategically what we want to do with it. For potential investors who are on the sidelines listening, market cap of GoVX stands at about 195 million Canadian here. What would you say to them about considering the company at this stage and at current levels? I'm clearly going to say to you it's going to go up a lot higher. And I think, you know, if you just look at it from where we think the market is going to go, where we are relative to our peers, we're massively undervalued against our peers. And I think inappropriately so. You know, we've got two of the best projects in Africa with Madawela and, and Matanga. Um, you know, one of them is exceedingly low operating costs, the other one's exceedingly low capital cost. These projects, just from a point of view of getting them into development, there is a lot of upside for us here. And there has been recent research out, you know, anyone who can get their hands on, on that research, what have initialized on us, have a read and see what they've got to say about it. You know, we think there's, there's a lot of upside here, Andrew. And Dan, the best way for investors to reach out to the company? I would send you through um, info at gobx.com. One of the things we changed this year, we brought on Isabel to improve our communications and um, corporate communications. She's very reactive on that. And I will always respond as quickly as I can to, to messages or questions that come through that as well. So hopefully you know investors have seen an improvement in the way that we are communicating through the different mediums um i'm a luddite when it comes to computers but i've certainly had good feedback on the way that we've gone out there and informed people on the way we do things with twitter etc so yeah come through that way we respond to it dan always a pleasure to chat the market and to chat govx updates looking forward to seeing more progress at the company during 2022 and best of luck Thank you, Andrew. It's appreciated, and uh, thanks for taking the time to, to chat today.